1 Samuel 20 is the text for this morning's sermon, if you want to turn there. 1 Samuel 20, 1 through 42. And uh, just as we read through this, I've been asked to uh, ask you to keep your mind, uh, keep your eye out for uh, covenant language, uh, relationship language, particularly uh, language that reflects uh, the relationship between people and God and uh, people with other people with God holding that relationship together. Covenant language. First Samuel 20, beginning in verse 1. Then David fled from Nioth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it. You should not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at table with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says, good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand, and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it, as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send a young man, saying, Go find the arrows. If I say to the young man, Look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them. 
Then you are to come, for the Lord, as the Lord lives, it is safe for you, and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So David hid himself in the field. And when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat as at, as at, other times, and on the seat by the wall, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, something has happened to him, he is not clean, surely he uh, is not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty, and Saul said to Jonathan his son, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked me, asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if you have found favor in your, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food on the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap, and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed. And Jonathan went into the city. Thanks. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I pray that uh, as we consider this text, uh, we consider what uh, relevance this has for our life. Uh, you would direct us to your love for us, God. Uh, Lord, I pray that you might be pleased to use uh, this text to draw people to you, even maybe for the first time to trust in your, your faithfulness. 
in your love and in, in Christ. Uh, God, I pray that uh, you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder what burdens uh, you came to church with this morning. Uh, you consider over probably a hundred people uh, coming into a building, uh, all of our lives with different struggles and pressures. I know what some of you are going through. I know Wayne uh, lost his wife earlier this week. Um, I have a mission trip uh, in front of me, leaving my family for 11 days in my little girls. Um, one thing I'm sure of is that you're all coming here bringing with you a crazy life. All of our lives are like shifting sand where things are changing. We're, we live in a fallen world where our health is no guarantee. Maybe you have uh, worries about your health, about how long you'll live. Maybe you have worries about your finances. Maybe you have worries about relationships, whether it's with your spouse or your family or your friends. The reality is, is all of us are the same and that we come in to this building with burdens. We'd be lying if we said that wasn't true. Every single one of us. And knowing that and meditating on this text this week makes me excited to point out what I think we all can take. Uh, from this text that Scott just read. Now, 42 verses. We don't have enough time to go through all these verses uh, verse by verse. Uh, but I do want to consider what this text has to say to us. Because here's the question you need to ask. What is going to secure you in light of whatever you came in here with? That's a good question. What's going to secure you? Where are you going to look? What's going to be your hope? How long will that last? That's my question. In a sense, I'm asking, how good a foundation do you have to stand on? And as we come to this, I just want us to think for a minute. I want to tell us what happens in Africa when some of these Songhai people come to know the Lord. When they come to trust in Christ in this culture, 99% Muslim, and they go down to the river, everything happens at the river because they live in the Sahara Desert. And so, when a group of ten believers go down to the river, to baptize the new, their new brother and sister in Christ. What happens is, is they go into the river, they declare to the public around what's going on, 
that this person is declaring Jesus Christ as Lord of their life. And when they come up out of the river and you have hundreds of your family and friends, the people you grew up with over here, they now have just turned their back on you. Whatever you sell or seek to make a living by, they will not buy from you anymore. All is most of these people have when they come up out of the river is those six to ten people that are newfound friends and family. And yet, they count the cost. They're baptized into Christ. And their life gets so much more difficult. And everyone who looks at this situation, who doesn't have eyes to see, says this is crazy. This is ridiculous. What a poor decision. But I want to ask you, what secures them? Well, I think when we look at this, when we look at what's going on in David's life, David has just slayed Goliath. He's been anointed by Samuel to be the next king. No one knows that. Saul is king. Saul seems to have all the power. David's been invited into Saul's house to serve him, to be a uh, to lead some troops. David's a valiant warrior and and servant. But Saul fears David. Saul, in his heart of hearts, knows that David is going to be king. Samuel the prophet has already told Saul, because you did not obey the words of the Lord, God is going to rip the kingdom from you. Your children will not be on the throne. And we saw last week how many times just in chapter 19, David's life was in jeopardy. How many times an attempt to kill David was there. And it culminated when Saul said, if no one else can get the job done, I'm going to go kill him. And as he came into Ramah to, to David, as, as he came into the city, Saul falls down and begins to prophesy. The Spirit of God came upon Saul and God Himself protected David from him. And what we looked at last week is who can harm us if God is for us? Who can be against us? Even David's enemies end up protecting him. And I, and sometimes we read these stories and we think David wasn't a human being. It's almost like this is just a movie with a character. What would it be like to not know you've done anything wrong? He hasn't. He's done nothing wrong to Saul. And yet Saul, the king, the most powerful man in the land, seeks your life. Well, this is the reality for David. And Jonathan, which is David's dear, closest friend, Jonathan's already given him his sword, given him his bow, given him his robe. In a sense, he's given him the kingdom. Saying, I'm the next in line, but I know God has called you. 
That's what leads us into this text. And as Scott read, we see a naive Jonathan right at the beginning. We see in the first three verses, David says, your dad's out to kill me. He says, surely he's not. Or he would tell me. And David, in a sense, tries to give Jonathan a little bit of sense of the reality of the situation. And you see this amazing covenanting between Jonathan and David. Jonathan promising, I'll find out how my dad feels about you. I will tell you. I give you my oath between God, you and me. There's a covenant here. And then Jonathan says, when God makes you king and and destroys all your enemies, will you preserve me? And there's this covenant where David promises, yes, I'll preserve you. And we see later in 2 Samuel, I think it's chapter 9, where David preserves this uh, Mephibosheth, uh, descendant of Jonathan, because of this promise. And so you have these two people doing what seems absolutely crazy in the eyes of Saul, in the eyes of any political leader. And then you see the culmination of how it plays out. Saul tries to throw the spear at his own son. He's so angry. Jonathan's loyalty is to this covenant relationship with David between him and God. And these are the things I want us to look at in this text. First of all, the main thing I want you to know is what's in bold print on the top of your notes there. Know the covenant love of the Lord so that you can live for God's kingdom, not your kingdom, with peace even in the midst of the storm. That's what the sermon's driving at. And I have four charges, four points I want to give you. Number one, let covenant love make you counter-cultural. What do I mean here? Well, in verses 12-17, through you see what Fox News could never understand. What CNN could never understand. You see the rightful line to the kingship. The king's son. Commit to the one who's going to take his position and say, I'm going to make sure you take my position. You, you see this covenant that already happened a few chapters before. The world cannot understand this. His father's line is going to be done unless David is killed. And Jonathan is making friends with the enemy. It's what his father cannot wrap his mind around. What are you doing? But what you see is, could there be a relationship a covenant relationship 
that causes us to live our lives in such a way that the world would look at it and say, I cannot understand that type of relationship. I've never known that type of relationship. Or let's reverse it. Look at David's covenant to Jonathan in this text. What, what does anyone who takes the throne, what's the first thing you do to protect your kingdom? Whatever family members are left of whoever used to be on the throne, what do you do? You go kill them. You wipe them out. This is the obvious political move that every king did in those days. If you want to secure your kingship, you go kill every male in that line. Go wipe them out and then your kingdom will be secure. But David promises Jonathan, I will not wipe you out when I am king. And so you see both of them acting totally countercultural because of a relationship, of their relationship with each other, with God at the center. And the thing to see here is this is a life-changing relationship. This is a relationship that shines so bright in the darkness of the world that people on the outside are looking at this going, what is going on with these people? In Paul, in a sense, I think, reveals something so true in 1 Corinthians 2.6 when he says this. He says, Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Paul's saying, the Gospel I'm preaching, the kings of the earth don't understand. They don't get it. They don't understand it at all. But he says, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before our, before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So the secret hidden is the way God was going to save sinners and draw them back into a right relationship with Him was through His Son that would bear their sins and suffer on the cross. And the Jews said, that's foolishness. God would never die. God would never be so shamed to be naked and be hung on a cross. And the Gentiles said, this is foolishness. But to those whom are being saved, it's life. And, and so we see this. The ruler of their day, Saul, could not comprehend. Um, second point. Count the cost of covenant love. What does it cost David and Jonathan to be in this type of relationship with God and with another brother who loves God in the same way. Well, just look at verse 30. 
when Jonathan asks, what did, what did David do? And he said that David was going to go to Bethlehem. And that's why he wasn't there. It says, Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. What do you think a more accurate translation should be <laughs> in, in the English? You son of a, rever- a perverse, rebellious woman. This is a father looking at his son saying exactly what we know he's saying to him. Do I not know you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered his father, why should he be put to death? What, what wrong has he done? Saul doesn't have any answer except to grab his spear because he's really torqued off and whip it at his son. For Jonathan, it cost him his relationship with his father. It cost him his kingdom. But why was it, why would it be worth it to him to be in this relationship? Why would those Songhai people choose six strangers that you just met over your whole lifetime of friends and family? Look at the cost. And yet, what does Jesus say? Matthew 10.34 He says, Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set man against his father and daughter against her mother and daughter-in-law against her daughter-in-law and mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever seeks his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You see, if you want to have a relationship with God, it might mean your family will desert you. It might mean they push you away. Now, now let's just be clear here. Jesus is not teaching that He hopes children disrespect their parents and don't love them. No. He wants parents to be honored. He wants there to be love between father, mother, son. His point is this. Nothing can become more important than your relationship with Me. Not even your closest relationships. And then he culminates it where he says, you have to be willing to take up your cross and die. But what what do you gain? He who loses his life will find it. You actually find life. You preserve life. But for those who seek to save their life, 
who don't want to come in that type of covenant relationship with God, and so they protect, they save their life here, will find out that they lose it. And Jesus taught this principle that Jonathan, by the grace of God, understood. And he was willing to count the cost. Third point. Through covenant love, seek God's kingdom. I mean, look at verse 31. Here's what Saul says to David. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, unless we kill David, what does he say? Neither you nor your kingdom will be established. You cannot save your life unless you kill David. Is what he's saying. His father is saying, don't be a fool, Jonathan. Everything, all your hopes and dreams are set in this. We have to kill him. I know you like him. But your kingdom will not stand if you do not kill him. But what did Jonathan do? He was seeking another kingdom than his father was seeking. He had a different perspective on kingdom. Jonathan put Yahweh's Word, Yahweh's servant, and Yahweh's kingdom first. Jonathan knew David was God's choice. Jonathan knew that the prophet had already told his dad the kingdom was going to be pulled. And Jonathan knew that God's kingdom could not be thwarted, could not be stopped. And you can all hear Jesus' words. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Seek Him. You think... I mean, this is the crazy thing. We think that God's tricking us. Oh, oh, seek Me, but then I'm really going to leave you empty. Does Christ really die... Does God's own Son come really die to fail to bring His people into His kingdom and give them eternal life? That'll never happen. You seek His kingdom, all, all things will be added to you. You become inherent. You will inherit everything the Son inherits. We will not be disappointed if we seek First, the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus says, you know what? I don't know if you, how many of you guys invest money. You want a good investment? Lose your life here temporarily. You're selfish. Your kingdom. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to build my own thing. I'm going to live for myself. You live that and then die apart from God forever. What a foolish investment. Even though the world, I know the world looks, why would you go on a mission trip to a dangerous part of Africa 
my hope is not, we're all terminal. Joyce passed away this week. You're going to pass away maybe next week or at least a few years down the road. None of us have that many years in front of us. We're all terminal. And Jesus says, make the good investment. Don't seek your kingdom. Die to your own selfishness. Seek the kingdom of God and find life that's preserved forever. There is, it is not foolish, even though the world will look at us and say, that's crazy. Live for yourself. Live, live for number one. But Jonathan understood that God's covenant love for him, and therefore he said, I'm going with God's kingdom. I'm not going to get it my own way. And fourthly, know the comfort of covenant love. Here's why the sermon is called Crazy Covenant Love. I didn't know if I wanted to call it Crazy Covenant Comfort because you want to know the shocking thing to me in this text. Look at verses 41-42. through 42. None of us could imagine much more turmoil in life. I mean, both for Jonathan and for David. Jonathan, they have to hide their conversation. They have to disguise it. They feel so much threat from Saul in his kingdom. And yet, in verse 41, after... The boy has collected the arrows and he's given the signal to David that it's not safe for you here. He sent the boy away and you just get this picture. Can you imagine this picture? The boy goes away. There's a little bit of privacy. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone, stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times and they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. And Jonathan said to David the most crazy words. He says, go in peace. Are you kidding me? What's the message? The message is, my dad's after you. He's going to kill you and he might kill me. Just threw a spear at me. Go in peace. Because, that's important, we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be to be, to be between me and you, between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into his city. Here's, here's the message. I don't know how your world is shaking. I don't know all the burdens you come in here with, but I do know this. That in two people's lives, David and Jonathan, in the most dire circumstances, they could speak peace because of a covenant relationship between them and their God. How valuable of 
treasure we're given here? What's going to secure you? What's going to be your foundation when you get the phone call that says you have cancer? What's going to secure you when your son or daughter pass away? Or your mother passes away? Or your wife passes away? Where are you going to find peace? This love, this commitment, these words is hesed. Hesed is the word in the Hebrew. It's a faithful love. It's a loyal love no matter the circumstances. We need to know Psalm 31.7 is true. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love, in your loyal love, because you have seen my affliction. I'm being afflicted. I'm going to be glad because I know my God is a loyal God. A steadfast God. We have so many promises. I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'll be with you always to the end of the age. Christ how about Matthew 26? When we, when we have a communion service together, what does this mean? It's one of the most beautiful pictures. Matthew 26, 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, He broke it and gave it to His disciples and said, take, eat, eat. This is My body. And He took a cup. And when He would given thanks, He gave it to them. And He said, drink of it, all of you. For this is My blood of the covenant. Now remember, in the Old Testament, how did they cut a covenant? They cut an animal in half. They put part of the animal over here. The other part of the animal over here. The two people covenanting together walk through the center of those animals. In a sense, they're saying, if we break our covenant, let us be split in half? Well, the new covenant is in the blood of Jesus Christ. For this is the blood of My covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit, the fruit of this vine, into the day when I drink it anew in My Father's kingdom. Here's, here's the beauty. When you're going through hell, do you have a relationship with Christ? Because if you do, you have a relationship with everyone else in the church. One of your family members might die. You have covenant community in Christ that will die for you. There's a commitment unto death for each other. I don't know the Songhai brothers, but I know they're my brothers. And it's worth it to go encourage them over there. Even if cost is high because of the love of Jesus Christ in His blood. His covenant blood. We weren't ransomed with 
silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Here's the Gospel. For God so loved the world, He looked down, He saw a world rebelling against Him. The Bible describes sin as not just bad things we do, but anything we do where we're not giving Him glory. When we just eat a snack to eat a snack without thanksgiving, it's sin. We sin all the time. God looks down. He sees the sinful world. And in His love, He sends His Son. Because here's our problem. The whole problem of the Bible is this. How can God forgive you if He is perfectly just? Now listen to me. If God is perfect and God is just, He cannot forgive you without throwing His justice to the ground. Can He? What if someone murdered one of your family members and he went before the judge and the judge said to the criminal, what do you have to say for yourself? And he says, well, judge, I think you're a loving judge. I think you'll forgive me. What if the judge said, yep, I am. You're off. You're going to cry out and say, he may be forgiving, but he isn't just. That's the problem that the whole Bible seeks to answer. Seems like an impossible problem. But God in His wisdom, here's how He solves it. He sends a man. Because men have sinned. Men and women have sinned. He sends a man. Jesus Christ. To stand in your place so that when He was on that cross, God really poured out His wrath on Jesus for yours and my sin. And so you picture it. God judges sin. He never shuffles it away. He judges it in Christ so that He can be both just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Christ. It's the only way anyone can be saved is if somehow their sins can be taken away. What does it mean to be saved? To live in the presence of God without His judgment or wrath upon you for sin, but to have it taken away in Christ. And so an exchange happened. He takes my filthy life and is punished for it. He gives me His perfect life in my account, counts it righteous to me. I'm never perfect, but He puts it in my account so that on judgment day, Christ's life is standing in my place. That's covenant love in Christ's blood. Every other religion of the world says, be good enough and God will accept you. There is no one good. There's no one good. All of us are sinners in need of salvation. And Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. So it's my prayer that you can have the same security Jonathan and David have in God's covenant love for you in the person of Jesus Christ and with His church. Father, none of our goodness would ever bring us into Your presence. It's not that bad people go to hell and good people go to heaven. 
we know that the reality is is that we're all sinful. There is no good ones. But those who will receive the gift of grace of Jesus Christ and will believe upon Your Son, Your Word tells us You'll count it to us as righteousness. Lord, I pray that no one would leave here without this firm foundation, this comfort that the world cannot understand apart from You. Lord, help us to be loving to each other since You were so loving to us. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.